this week we are going to continue in Philippians and we're going to be in Philippians chapter two. And before we turn there, I want to remind you, we, we have all heard of moral failures in ministry. So one of the first ones that comes to my mind is Jimmy Swagger, who back in the 80s uh, was pulled over and was caught with a prostitute riding with him in the front seat. He was a really prominent minister. A lot of people said a lot of great things about his ministry. And in just a few minutes, it all came crashing down as it was discovered that he had a sexual addiction and he sought out prostitutes. You can't be a pastor and have that kind of sin in your life. More recently, uh, Mark Driscoll is a guy, I don't know if anybody here other than maybe Chris has heard of Mark Driscoll and knows who he is. He is a conservative guy that theologically, I agree with not everything, but a lot. So I would consider him kind of a brother in terms of doctrine, and yet he had to step down from his ministry for really being a bully. Uh, He didn't commit adultery, he didn't steal anything, but he was verbally abusive, he was proud, he was controlling, he expected people to cater to his desires and vision for ministry, and if you didn't get on board, he got rid of you. And that is the exact opposite of how Jesus said a pastor should be and how leaders in the church should lead, and tragically, when he stepped down, his entire church actually folded. They couldn't keep the doors open without him. So they couldn't live with him, and they couldn't live without him either. And these kind of public catastrophes, these kind of public failures, are some of the reason that people say bad things about the church and about Christ. Believe it or not, stories like this are part of why I actually started paying attention to John Piper. Not because of what he said or what he did in terms of his public ministry and preaching and in books, But because in 2010, 25 years after he wrote his first book, which was incredibly successful, he requested from the elders of his church to take an unpaid leave of absence for eight months because he sensed pride developing in him and a selfishness that was harming both his marriage and the church and the ministry. And so he said, I need to deal with my house and make things right with my wife. I'm not asking for a vacation. I'm not asking for pay. I need time to get right with God. And the elders said they actually insisted on paying him. And and he uh, wrote kind of publicly that he was going to talk to his wife. They're going to talk about giving back to the church to make sure they offset the cost of his leaving. So he did take this leave. He took eight months to address issues in his life that said, you know what? As a leader with some strengths, I'm battling with this pride that's killing my marriage, that's hurting the church. So he took eight months and stepped down from public ministry. I think that demonstrates a kind of humility that says, I am not the most important thing here. God is. And I have to be right with him before I can serve. And when I say I, I mean all of us. This is true of every individual believer. That's why Paul is writing in Philippians and saying, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. The difference between Jesus and us, obviously, is Jesus doesn't struggle with sin, but we do. And when we recognize it, we must deal with it. And so Piper stepped down for eight months. He didn't write books. He didn't blog. He only confessed his sin, sought healing in his marriage, sought some counseling, and stepped back from leadership. I believe that he did what Paul talks about, and that kind of public confession 
I'm struggling with this. Not every confession has to be public, but he said his sins were done in public. And so he publicly confessed them and changed. That is a humility that is tragically rare. And when he stepped back into ministry, after eight months of soul searching, he preached a message that began with a public confession of the sins that he had been dealing with. Public because he believed that he'd committed them in public. And as a public leader, those sins needed to be dealt with in public. And he preached on the two verses that I am preaching on today, preaching about his need to fight sin in his own life. If you'd like to hear that message, I'll make it available online later. I have a copy of it with me. You can read it. I think it's a rare and good example of how to humble yourself when you are caught in a sin. Not everyone needs to do it public. But we need more of that as we build each other up in the church, not less. Very often when we realize that we're caught in sin, we very privately try and hide it. When in reality, we need the support of the church to help us through it. So today, I do want to say this. As we grow in Christ, that growth involves struggling. It involves sweat. It involves tears. It involves struggle for every Christian, you cannot look at mature Christians and assume that they arrived at maturity easily without struggle. It's easy to dismiss mature, godly saints and say, well, that's just who they are. And you give yourself a free pass and say, I'm not that kind of person. The reality is they weren't either when they came to Christ. You shouldn't assume that they have been without struggle. And you should not assume that mature Christians continue to exist without struggle. In this book, Paul has used the word strive and struggle to describe the Christian life. And it's my prayer for today that we will learn what it means to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And that we would obey what the word of God teaches. I believe if we don't, it's just a matter of time before we fail. So read with me Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. If you're looking in one of the blue Bibles, you can find that passage on page 981 in one of the blue Bibles. Or if you've got the large print, it's page 1165. And let's read it together. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the command to fearfully obey. The command to fearfully obey. I entitled this point, the command to fearfully obey, because Paul tells the church, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, and that command is based on their past obedience. So he said, just like you have always obeyed in the past, Continue your obedience, and this is how you continue your obedience, with fear and trembling. The verse starts out, therefore, and this logically concludes, since we have this example in Jesus Christ of what radical obedience and humility is, therefore, continue with your obedience and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You have an example to look at. You know what this should be like, so do it. Put it into practice. The commands that he has given them throughout this letter include striving and struggling for unity in the church 
for the sake of the gospel, that it would be spread, that people would know the good news of Jesus where you live and all around the world. He lists in two, chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, a few commands that I'd like to read with you. So if you have your Bibles, read this with me as well. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. These are the commands that he is giving them that he expects them to obey. And verses 14 through 18, the next passage that you'll be hearing from next week, continue this kind of theme where he says, do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now here, pick up this, this command, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. His passion for them, they would do all things without grumbling or questioning, holding fast to the word of life. He wants them to have unity that's focused on gospel mission, that they would love the truth that Jesus died for them, that their sins are forgiven, that they would spread that truth and that their church, the body of believers, would have a joyful unity together. And he is giving them direct commands that say, obey these commands so that you will build this kind of unity, so that you will have this kind of joy. And yet, interestingly, he adds this command to work this salvation out in fear and trembling. That doesn't sound like a joyful unity. So why does he say that? Well, I believe that the verses that we're, we're focusing on today, verses 12 and 13, are focused more on the individual Christian so that we would individually grow closer to the Lord following him in obedience and allowing him to work in our lives so that when we come together, we're able to have unity. If God has not worked in each of us individually, when we come together, we will still have our besetting sins. We will still be proud. We will not be able to have a joyful unity unless God works in us individually first. And so these two verses, I believe, focus on the individual as a prerequisite to having joyful unity in the church. And I want to set one thing straight immediately. This command to work out your salvation in fear and trembling is not a command that implies your salvation depends on your ability to work in this life. He's not saying work for your salvation in fear and trembling. He's saying work out the gift that you have received. Works demonstrate that you have received salvation as a gift of God. They do not contribute to it. Paul has, in this letter, praised the church for partnering with him in the gospel. And the gospel of grace that he declared to the Philippian jailer when he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He didn't say, you will be saved if you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He said, you will be saved. The good news of the gospel is, Jesus paid it all. You are not saved by works. But if that's true, what does it mean that we are working this salvation out with fear and trembling? What are we afraid of after we have received salvation? Well, I believe there are three answers, uh, two of which really come directly from the text, and one of which I've, I've pulled from the book of Hebrews that I believe is also very biblical, and I want to mention that here today too. First, we may be afraid 
of what God has planned for us. We may be afraid of what God has planned for us. Paul has described his chains in this letter. He has said, you've heard that I'm in prison. Everyone universally acknowledges being in prison is a bad thing. It's uncomfortable. Your chains chafe at you. Unless someone provided you with food, you went hungry. Roman jails were not known for being very friendly to their prisoners. And so hearing that this great missionary is locked in a jail cell is not automatically a joyful, happy thing. And Paul explains, no, this was God's will for me, and it is advancing the gospel. And so Paul says, these chains were God's will for me. If you hear that, and you recognize that God has a plan for you, we love to say God has a wonderful plan for your life. His plan for you may include something like Paul's chains. That would make any normal person afraid. And if you want a second example of that, we've just read about the humility of Christ that became a man that was obedient to the point of death on a cross. And we know that Christ was afraid of that death because in the garden, he sweated drops of blood. The life that God called his son to live here on earth was not a pleasant or easy life life and Jesus knew it and looking at what God had called him to he was afraid and so what God has called you to today whether it is cancer whether it's the loss of a job we think of those things and think man God couldn't have planned this this is some sort of accident you know God is surprised somehow but that's not true in the goodness of God he has planned every detail of your life and he has allowed those things in your life And knowing that may cause you to fear the future. You will have spiritual battles as you walk through disappointment. Some of you have experienced divorce. There are all kinds of terrible things that God has lovingly allowed into your life. And knowing that our loving God allows things like that may fill you with fear. And so as God has called you to walk in obedience, you may recognize the cost of obedience is high, And you may be afraid. You may be tempted to turn back. And Paul is saying, don't turn back. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's natural to be afraid of the pain and suffering that God allows in your life. But be faithful to the salvation he has given you and hold fast to that. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The second thing is we may be afraid of the discipline of a holy God. We may be afraid of the discipline of a holy God. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6 very clearly describes the discipline of our holy God, saying that he disciplines us like a father wanting to train his children to grow up into maturity. God is not an abusive God. He doesn't hurt his kids out of anger or out of frustration But God disciplines them to make them mature so that they eventually become like Jesus Christ. This is how God teaches us to forsake sin. And Hebrews says, no one enjoys discipline at the time. We naturally fear it. So if you have been convicted by God that there is some sort of sin in your life and you recognize that a holy and a righteous God does punish sin and that continuing in sin means a loss of fellowship 
and a loss of reward, you may fear God's discipline. Paul says in Corinthians, because you have taken the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, many of you are sick and some of you sleep. God is pouring out his judgment on the church because people are continuing in sin and acting like they're in fellowship with Christ by taking communion without addressing their sin. The reality is what Paul warns them against, being sick and being called home, dying. Those are manifestations of God's judgment on the church, on believers. And there is a place to be afraid of the discipline of a holy God. Third, we may be afraid that God himself is at work in us. This is what the very next verse implies. And you might say, why would I be afraid of that? Well, it says, for God is at work in you. In other ways, fear and tremble because the holy God of Mount Sinai, the God that appeared in glory to Moses and Isaiah, that God is at work in you and you should tremble at his holy presence. Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and we should be in awe of our great God. This is the God who is at work in us. And the next verse says that it is God who works. Look with me at verse 13 and we'll see the comfort of God's faithful work. Verse 13 reads, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I entitled my second point, The Comfort of God's Faithful Work, because the fear in verse 12 is somewhat balanced by the assurance of verse 13. And I say it's somewhat balanced because Paul gives God's work within you as a reason for that fear and trembling. So it's not completely offset. We are in the presence of a holy God. We need to recognize that. And yet at the same time, remember Philippians 1 verse 6. Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. God never leaves a job half done. He will bring it to completion. So there is also comfort knowing that God is the one who's at work in you. But it's an ongoing process. Both the the verbs in these two verses. The command, work out your salvation. That's a present tense, ongoing necessity. And the way that God is described as the one who works. That's a present tense, ongoing, continuing reality that God is at work in your life. When you're saved. He doesn't transform you and make you perfectly sinless in a moment. He continues to work in your life. And notice the last phrase of the verse here in verse 13. We're going to come back to the two things that it says God does in you in a moment. But notice before we do, God does this for his good pleasure. This is the phrase describing our happy God who works all things according to his will. And his will is never frustrated. Ephesians 1.5 says, In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, welcoming us into God's family, according to the purpose of His will. And that word for purpose there is the same word that's used for good pleasure in Philippians. It's the idea that God has set His will and it is good. So you can think of it as good pleasure, And you can think of it as his purpose that is divine, that will not fail. And it describes God's will as good pleasure because it is his joyful will. 
Ephesians makes it clear that God will always bring about his perfect will. Verse 11 says he works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things, everything. He uses everything to accomplish his will. Nothing is a surprise and nothing is an accident. So the encouraging aspect of this verse is God is the one who is working and his work is always completed. And God's joyful will accomplishes two things in you and in me. It says to will and to work his good pleasure to give you the motive, the will, and to give you the muscle the work to be like Christ. So first, let's talk about to will. God gives you a desire to obey him. This may start out small and it may start out weak. But if God has saved you, it will grow and your desire for sin will grow weaker and your desire for God will grow stronger. God at work in you will change your will according to his good pleasure. And let me say this. He only rarely replaces a bad desire with a good one in a single miraculous moment. He's done it, and I've heard testimonies about it. We've heard testimonies about it. We had a woman here Easter Sunday talk about how when she was saved, one of the first things that God did for her was transform her mouth. She was a pipe fitter, and she worked in a shop and was around filthy language, and she learned to use it and use it strongly And when she got saved, God changed the way she talked. And she said it was immediate. And one of the most obvious reasons she knew that God had really done something in her life. So sometimes that happens. But that's not normal. Most of us struggle with the sins that we have. And God begins the process by giving you a deep dissatisfaction with sin. It leaves a bad taste in your mouth. You may not even desire what's good at that stage. But you'll begin to be disappointed in sinful things you used to love and recognizing that you can't have joy in them anymore. You will feel grief when you fail. And slowly, you'll find that he blesses you with a desire for good things in the place of those things that you used to find joy in. I think we all wish that God would just change our desires in just a moment so that we would never struggle again. But in his kindness, he has chosen for us to grow by a gradual changing of our will that also involves work. So I said, this is the this is the muscle that puts that desire into action. So the second way God works in us is to cause us to work, not like mindless robots But as people who have begun to be awakened from a long sleep, we begin to obey. And the more we wake up, the easier it is for us to walk in obedience. And the scripture negatively describes this kind of work as warfare against our sinful nature. You do not tolerate pride, greed, lust, laziness, or worry. And you begin to work to eliminate them in your life. You learn how to pray. You make strategies so that you change. You find accountability. You begin to learn what's true from the word of God. If you are not fighting sin in your life in some way, let me say to you this morning, you are not growing. The reason we read Psalm 101 this morning is because in it, the psalmist has made a list of resolutions, things that he will do. He says, 
He won't set evil before his eyes. He will sing songs of praise to the Lord. He will meditate, ponder deeply, and think about what's true from the Scriptures. Not just casually reading them or hearing them, but continuing to think about them, memorizing them so that the Word of God abides in him. And he said, I will do this. How many of you have made a commitment to do something like that and planned individual steps to make sure that you follow through? If you decide that you're going to tackle a diet, and some people do this, some people do this on an annual basis, you don't just say, "Eh, I'm going to eat a little better. If you do, you know it's just a matter of time before you fail. You have to change your habits so that you change what you eat. That might mean that you don't drive the same route to work so that you don't pass your favorite fast food place anymore. That's a strategy to change your behavior. It might mean that you positively make a conscious choice to buy tasteless and bland vegetables that no one wants to eat. And you have easy access to them and you pack them in your lunch on a daily basis so that they're there. That's a strategy to change your behavior. It's work. Most people don't enjoy it, at least not right away. But by the grace of God, as you begin and continue, you start to change and you find you don't mind those things anymore. You actually enjoy food that's a little bit better for you. And slowly and gradually, you recognize that this was a good change and a right change. And what once was difficult work becomes a joy that you start to tell other people about. That's what it means for God to will and to work in you. It means he changes your desires and he sets you to work. Let me ask you, have you made a plan for how you will obey the Lord in your life? Are you working out your salvation in every area of your life? If you don't know your besetting sins, I would encourage you In a safe context, find a close friend. If you're married, talk to your spouse and gently be honest with each other because I guarantee you if you're married, your spouse knows what your besetting sins are. All you have to do to find out is just ask and they will tell you. If you're not married, find someone you trust that you work with. Find someone you trust that you see on a regular basis and say, could you lovingly help me grow? This is something that we need to do together as a church so that we're faithful to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Piper said, as he was struggling with selfishness and pride, he was struck by this verse. Because although he understood the need to wage war against sexual sin, and I think a lot of guys understand that, because pornography is so pervasive, we understand we have to make strategies So that we avoid that kind of sin. It might mean you don't keep your computer in a private room in your house where no one can see you. It might mean you only go online in a public room. That's a strategy that says, I know I have this weakness, so I'm not going to give an opportunity for my flesh. We know and recognize that we have to strategize to fight sins like that. But I think we rarely think about the fact that we need to strategize to fight other sins in our life as well. And he said he recognized for the first time that not only struggling and fighting against sexual sin demanded work, but that every sin demands work. That this is how God changes you. 
And so he began to have strategies to fight pride and selfishness. And I want to ask you this morning, I don't know what each of you are dealing with, but what if it's worry? Have you ever analyzed what causes worry in your life so that you can begin to avoid it? And you might say, my kids cause worry in my life. I can't avoid them. Okay, that's true. You can't avoid your kids. But what can you do to avoid worrying about them? Because worry implies that either God is not loving or God is not in control. God has planned your children's lives as well. And you can trust God with them. He's bigger than you and loves them better than you do. So let me urge you, if pondering all the things that can go wrong in your children's lives causes you to worry, maybe you shouldn't think about it. Maybe you should choose to focus on something else. Maybe something productive and constructive that you could really genuinely help them with. Your worry doesn't really help your kids. Or if you worry about something else. You know, we we came through a pretty ugly election cycle. If you worry about the state of the nation, maybe for a time you need to turn off the news and quit reading the paper. The world will actually go on just fine without us being perfectly informed. And hear me, I'm not saying that we should be uninformed. We need to be engaged. It's critical. I really believe that Christians are called to be very active politically. And yet, if that kind of active engagement is feeding a sin of worry in your heart, you might need to take a break until you can recognize that God in his sovereignty is in control, not only of America, but of the entire world. And we can trust him. Even if he chooses to judge the country, we can trust that he is good and loving. And so I want to urge you, maybe a strategy to combat worry is just to turn the radio off. Put on some Christian music. Do something different. Because you need to change your mindset about worry. Have you ever thought about what causes greed in your life? Have you ever thought about how to fight greed? Personally, I can tell you in two words what causes greed in my life. Online shopping. You guys are laughing because you know it's true. I, I would like to buy a, a small little amplifier. And I know what I want. I know how much it costs. But every time I go and look at it, every website that will sell me this amplifier includes a long list of other amplifiers that are nicer and more expensive. And I immediately start looking at those features and thinking, oh, for just $200 more... I could have fill in the blank. Here's the thing. I'm not opposed to online shopping. It's not that it's a bad thing intrinsically. But if it causes greed in your life, you need to change how you shop. You need to ask somebody else to make the purchase for you. You need to go with focus and ignore those ads and get what you planned on buying using the wisdom of God to say, I can't blow my entire budget on this thing that I don't really need. So let me encourage you, if greed is an issue, and I think if you are an American, greed is an issue for you. So let's, let's just all be honest and say, we need to change our behavior to fight this sin. So I've just talked about greed, I've talked about lust, I've talked about worry. What about laziness? If you know that you're not working as hard as you should, how can you avoid being lazy? Can you spend some time with a hard-working person and learn from their work ethic? 
Can you learn how to plan the work that you need to do so that you accomplish things and become a good, faithful spouse or parent that you need to be? Kids, I don't want to let you guys off the hook either. You guys all have homework. God has called you to be a student. Are you a good student? Or are you a lazy student? If you are a lazy student, that's a sin. You need to change that. And you need to think, what makes me lazy? How can I be a better student and work hard and honor God with my studies? If you need help with that, I'm quite sure that your parents or grandparents can help you. Let me urge you, these sins are serious and they keep us from fellowship with Christ. Maybe the root of it all is that we don't fear God like we should. Would someone else describe you as a person who fears God? If this morning you can't honestly say yes to that question, let me urge you to do this this week. I want you to read the book of Hebrews multiple times. It's not that long of a book. You should be able to read it at least two or three times in a week. And I guarantee you, if you read Hebrews and you read it carefully, you will begin to fear God more. If you're not a reader, you're not a strong reader, you say, I can't do that. You can use a mobile app and you can go ahead and listen to someone else read you the book. It'll take you maybe 20 minutes at the most. And I want to encourage you, if you don't fear God enough, use his word to build a healthy biblical fear of him. I want to urge you that this is urgent. Let me plead with you that if you simply have no fear of God, then you have not surrendered to his plan for you and you are not allowing him to work in you. If you are not open to the pain that he has lovingly planned for you, if you aren't aware of the discipline that he lovingly uses in your life, and why he might exercise it. Or if you aren't aware of the awesome holiness that abides in you through the Holy Spirit, let me urge you, read the book of Hebrews. It will change you. And my prayer is that all of us would obediently work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who works in us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your awesome power and love for us that accomplishes these great things. And Lord, we confess, we just expect you to do this without us. And that's not what your word teaches us to do. We ask your forgiveness for a spiritual laziness that is complacent with sin. And we pray that you would, by your spirit, strongly convict us and help us to change. May we forsake our sins. And may we put on righteousness. We ask that you would bless us as a church, Lord. May we be a church that does what Philippians has commanded us to do. That we would faithfully obey your word. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.